So when there's not a Davy, Brandy forgets to hit the go live button. So what you guys missed was a fantastic introduction. There were fireworks. There was a parade. There were elephants. It was it was really quite something. But unfortunately, you missed that one because I forgot to go live. So instead, we're going to do it the old fashioned way. And I'm just going to say, first of all, welcome to Scott Carney, who is also having to deal with me uh, and not Davey. Bless his soul. Hello. Hey, how you doing? That was great. It was a good practice session. It was. And I think we're all loose and ready to go. Everyone, we have drinks. We so have go drinks. get them. Yeah, yes, we have drinks. We have drinks. And not only that, um, we, we also had a wonderful comedic routine that you guys missed. So it's okay. We're going to do it now. Uh, the drink is lovely, but I forgot to give it to Scott. So Scott has created a secondary drink that's going to work for tonight. That's going to go in our book at the end of the year. It's a and bottle it is, of whiskey. It's a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> it's a special high west whiskey straight. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and there is yeah, ice in the drink. Ice yeah, in I, your drink. I do. It clinks. You hear that? It's clinking. And we do have drinks. Good, good. I'm so excited. Um, yes. So several people are like, I thought I was losing it. No, no. This is. This is Brandy. This is Brandy not knowing what she was doing. Um, yes. Don't tell Davy. You're all going to tell Davy. I know you are. <laughs> High West is tasty. I agree. I agree. Agreed. So the drink we chose for tonight. Um, hi, Scott, says Susanna. Whoa, Susanna Spear. Wow. I haven't talked to you for ages. That's great. So she's with us tonight, too. And I'm going to make sure that all their comments pop up. This makes a lot more sense. I was getting comments, but they didn't. It didn't. Yeah. <clears throat> Moving on. The drink we chose was partly we were trying to kind of capture the, the strangeness, right? We've got a chili ring. It's kind of hot, spicy. There is actually, um, there's a worm in mine. Uh, it's got the tequila and it has green tea in this one. And there's a mocktail as well. And Kathleen Richards says it's so good. Thank you. I'm so glad. I do try to keep us, keep us in mocktails as well. We always pick a name. And tonight, I have to say, it was Sarah from New Zealand who came up with the Wim Hof quaff and mic drop. I don't think you can do better than that. So you will be getting a, uh, a pin, a lovely squid pin, Sarah. And thank you very much for the fabulous name. We'll pick some more winners later on. Maybe we need to name your cocktail since your cocktail is straight whiskey, a Scott Carney. Like maybe we need to have somebody, you guys come up with some names and we'll, we'll read them later and we'll, we'll pick another winner. Why not? So there was one that I heard of called the Hemingway Gone Fishing, which was just eight ounces of gin. And, you know, it could be something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Susan, Susan agrees. Um, so peculiars. I also have, uh, we do not have a Davy as I have clearly shown. Um, but uh, we do have, we do have a Mark or Lady Paws. Hello. He's here with us this evening. He's going to be bringing serotonin in the form of um, small, small fuzzy things. So he's going to pop back in in just a little while. I'm going to we're going to say goodbye for a minute. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> um, so Scott, I, I started off asking a question which nobody heard the answer to. So I'm going to start again, which is I feel like your your writing is so adventurous. Your life is so adventurous. In my mind, people just airdrop you into situations with a typewriter, and that's just how this all comes to be. But I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about where you got started, <laughs> again, technically. Uh, sure, sure. Oh, I'm thinking maybe I should make up an answer that's totally different than the last <laughs> one I gave you. Uh, 
so it's it for me. I, I started out as an anthropologist. I got my um, I got to the dissertation of the PhD and dropped out. And the fundamental question I dropped out to become a journalist. Uh, and the fundamental question of all the books that I've ever written is what is what about these situations make us human? Mm-hmm. And for me. And for any journalist, really, what we're interested in is not who you are when you're sitting on your couch uh, watching Netflix and your biggest decisions are, should I watch mm-hmm. Girls? I don't even know if that's on Netflix or <laughs> Game of Thrones, which is definitely not on Netflix, right? You, 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 where interesting things happen is on the edges, where things are stressful, mm-hmm. where things are difficult, and where your decisions are not necessarily clear and that they matter. And uh, you know, my first book was about organ trafficking. So buying and selling human body parts, that is a very extreme moment. Why would somebody want to sell a body part? Why would someone want to buy a body part? And why would someone want to maybe yeah. commit some pretty bad crimes? Right. Um, <laughs> it's called the red market, by the way, guys, if you haven't, if you haven't it's over, it. It's, it's over funny, it's reversed over here. So it's like <laughs> that. There, there we are. Um, uh, but you know, when we when we start looking at things like the wedge or what doesn't kill us, I've sort of taken this idea forward to sort of sensational moments, right? When we get to a place where your sensations and your emotions are pushing you to a uh, a point where you have to make a decision, right? That's what the wedge is. The wedge is like you're feeling something and you have to make a decision whether you're going to run or whether you're going to deal with it. And so, in, in a way, that the wedge is the most distilled version of Scott Carney. Um, right. Before Scott Carney goes off to other things, I, I got it. And uh, maybe in light of that, Sharon suggests that we should call your version of the cocktail tonight the Troubles. That sounds very Irish to me. Let's come over. Oh, it does. It does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot. Yes, you're right. You're not wrong about that. Um, well, uh, we we did. We wanted uh, Davy and I, even though Davy couldn't be here, he's here in spirit. Davy and I wanted to um, sort of see how this wedge might work. In, uh, in a situation like you describe, uh, which is also like parenthood, says Susan Ballinger. Um, For sure. And, uh, and so we thought we would, we would take this to agent finger guns. Yes, to agent finger guns and see, you know, when a person is under a lot of pressure, how, how that might work out. So we're just going to do a quick, a quick look at agent finger guns under pressure and, uh, and see how that all goes, see how the wedge kind of works out. Ah, Agent Finger Guns. Nice of you to ring. Look, I I sabotaged the computer, but the goons are waiting for me. Now I'm trapped. What do I do? Have you considered your automatic nervous system? My, my, my what? We all feel under fire when faced with stressful situations. Did you know incremental genetic adaptations hone the physiology of nearly every creature on this planet? Uh, um, um... Humans can wedge control over automatic physiology responses, like fear and pain. It can give you an edge in almost any situation. Think about how humans can live in extreme conditions, or even how we can adapt to things like oxygen deprivation or ice water. You just need to find the wedge. Okay, right, so the wedge, right. How, how do I do it? How do, how do I use the wedge? Well, join us for a chat with Scott Carney. 
He's the investigative journalist who climbed mountains with Wim Hof shirtless, no less. In fact, he'll be joining us at the Peculiar Book Club soon. Why not join us? There will be cocktails. Uh, oh, oh, well, yeah, well, you should have said So you know when you're in in extreme situations, that's that's um, like being shot at when like you're a spy. Shot at when you're a spy, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yes, right. Um, you're right. That does sound that that Professor Peculiar does sound a lot like the dog phrenologist we had on last week. It looks a bit like him too. Now that you mention it, Kristen. Um, <clears throat> by the way, that's what I look like if I were blonde. <laughs> Interesting. Um, but we, we actually really, we, we enjoyed making that one. But also, it's kind of true. And I was thinking about the fact that you, we do watch a lot of these. We, we watch James Bond or spy movies. But these are people who really are literally living at the very edge. And you think, how could they possibly make decisions that fast? How could they adjust writers. scenarios that... <laughs> writers. Exactly <laughs> the same. Just Scott and Brandy Bond right there. Um, but I, I you know in reading your book, I realized everybody actually has that potential to a certain degree, right? Oh, yes. Sadie Simmons says Brandy's book. And I've got hit. No, that way. It's really it's hard. hard. It's hard with this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Michelle. Um, we're like book buddies. Um, but what you prove is that anybody pushed to a certain limit, like you do think faster, you do respond faster, you do, I mean, not maybe not do James Bond stunts, but I, I can see how this how this kind of works out. Well, the thing is, when you're in a stressful situation, and uh, whether it is emotional, whether it is physical, really no matter what it is, mm -hmm. that you sense that stress, it comes into your skin, comes into your sensory organs. And the reason why you can, the reason why you're conscious is that everything, all of those sensations are giving you choices, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it, you know, when you get into the very cold area, your your body may say you have to get out of here right now and into a right. warm spot, or you could be your or your mind could be like, but I have to go through this cold area and I have to make it okay. And mm -hmm. and I wouldn't say you know with your example with the the spy under gunfire, sure. <laughs> the wedge is not a survival technique in the sense of like you're in an acute situation you're going to get killed mm -hmm. um, by by an assailant. What it is, though, is allows you to modulate your your response. So if you are right. panicking and you're out of control, the wedge is one way to sort of get that stuff back in control. <laughs> um, Stephanie, I'm with you on that one. I have trouble with uh, my social skills at the best of times. Um, Susan Ballinger actually says she'd rather deal with an active shooter than at a cocktail party. Um, but uh, you know, it, it is it's it's kind <clears throat> excuse me it's kind of true um, to me. It's it's about what you tell your brain. I, I honestly um, I decided to try snow bathing after reading uh, mm -hmm. this book, and I went outside and I thought, okay, so what if I what happens if I tell myself that this is fine? Now right. I'm not trained, so obviously this didn't go as well as I think um, you'd have performed much better, Scott. But <laughs> I later not the first time I jumped in an ice bath, I cried. So really? maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just you know we laid in the snow and I and I thought okay. I like this. I'm trying to tell myself, like, I like this. Yeah, I like this. This is good. This is good for me. I'm down with it. Mm -hmm. And it is odd. It, like, sort of stopped noticing how cold it was. Like, the minute I did it, I was mm -hmm. like, ah, go inside. But after I was out there mm -hmm. for a minute, I, you do kind of relax. So I I, I gave it a go, you know. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Alexandra says she loves it. <laughs> so 
I, I wonder how many situations in general are like that. I mean, it's not just, you're not just talking mm-hmm. about ice water anymore. In no. The kind of moved beyond that. Yeah. So the thing is that it, you're using the wedge, the way the, the term that I'm using is the wedge, but other people have other words for it. Mm-hmm. You're using that ever since the moment you are born, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're born basically babies. I don't know if you guys know this, but babies are weak. They're freaking weak. And when they're <laughs> born into this world, they, 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 they can't, really control their body at all. Like they, right. they, they can't control their poop. They're, 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 they're just learning to breathe. They don't know how to eat. I mean, they're weak. But <laughs> the, the process of going from basically a brain trying to figure out how, you're, how to interact with the outside world is all the wedge. And I, I can't remember what it was like to be a baby, but I'm going to imagine that as I'm a, a kid, I'm lying down in my crib and my hands might be moving, but I don't know why. And then all of a sudden I see a hand and I'm like, Whoa, I did that. That is the wedge. That is the wedge because you're expressing control first over your nervous system and then the outside world. Right. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know you, you're, you're taking yourself from autonomic to nomic. <laughs> there, should be, there should be a nomic word, right? You're Not to, uh, you're under somatic. Under somatic right, control. Right, right. Um, and it, I, for me, that's the, that's the kicker because, okay. Today, we heard that Russia has invaded the Ukraine, and my body did all kinds of things without my permission. Yep. You know, like yep. my heart rate was up and my stomach was mm-hmm. turning. I don't know. You guys go ahead and make me feel better. Tell me how you were <laughs> dealing with today. But, mm-hmm. um, and I couldn't concentrate. And I thought, wow, you know, I've just experienced like a massive loss of, of right. that somatic control. I feel like suddenly mm-hmm. I'm just kind of, I'm a, I, floating around, you know, at the whims of my body reactions to mm-hmm. something that's a stress that I honestly can't do anything about. And so I, I was thinking a lot as I read The Wedge, uh, a little bit less so with the, um, though that's true of what doesn't kill us too, but pers- specifically in what you talk about in The Wedge, how can we harness this for living in like, oh, I don't know, mm-hmm. pandemic, climate change, um, wars, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, what, what, what can we do how can we use this every day so that our lives are a little bit less chaotic? Well, so the critical insight probably in the wedge is that sensation is emotion and emotion is sensation. There's an equal sign between those two things. Mm -hmm. And I also had an emotional reaction to hearing about Ukraine last night, right? I think it's a horrible situation. I feel out of control. My breath breathing went up and, and, but that, that experience is it, it happened in two places. One, it happened in my mind. I'm thinking Ukraine. I'm thinking uh, invasion. I'm thinking nuclear war. You know, whatever else is going on in my mind there. Mm-hmm. But then there's the physiological <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and you have control to, to a degree on how you want to interpret those sensations. And I I will say like, sometimes you want to be stressed out. Sometimes a little stress is bad. Like, like there's a negative wedge where you just sort of like totally bliss out and you don't pay attention to reality. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say you want to like (laughs) disconnect and disassociate, but when you do physically hard things, uh, yeah. it, it, this is what this is the way this is ice water this is the stuff that but with fear when mm-hmm. you do physically hard things you become better at dealing with physically difficult sensations which also gives you a certain resilience to emotionally difficult situations because sensation equals emotion yeah. and you know 
a very negative way to look at that is like you're just sort of burying things deep. You're not touching yeah. them. But that's not really what we're trying to do here. We're trying to right. say that in these situations, you have a choice whether or not you're going to freak out, whether you're going to let your mind spiral to the end situation where all of a sudden yeah. we are actually in nuclear war. Or, <laughs> yeah. or, or we're like, oh, no, we're right now. We're right here. We know we can see what that situation is. And my, uh, my response will be appropriate and not exaggerated to what is currently going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, like Lexi was saying, um, her fiance just got back from the Middle East. And so like, mm-hmm. it's, there's a lot of tension, right? We, we are all kind of, I would like, Sharon, I agree, uh, like to live in slightly less interesting times. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like there's so little we can do about it. And I earlier on, I put up uh, Jennifer Pierce was saying like, I was not okay today. Yep. It's okay to be not okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mentally, mm-hmm. the, the trick is, Stress is so bad for our bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have autoimmune disorder, and th- there's lots and lots of evidence, increasing evidence, that autoimmune disorders are, if not caused by stress, at least massively exacerbated. Uh, sure. Stress. Ca- I think caused in many cases, yeah. for sure. Um, but so. yeah, there could also be genetic and other underlying things. That there's are, lots that are going of, on. yes. But, you mm-hmm. know, they've checked, like, there will be twins, and someone one will have... It, one won't, mm-hmm. it depends on the kind of experiences you've been through in your life. So if we can try to reduce that stress on right. the body, that, that alone, you know, don't think it's, it's, it's not pretending that the situation is okay. That actually mm-hmm. doesn't work anyway. When people are just like, just stop being stressed. I just want to throttle them, um, which would relieve my stress. Right. Well, that's sort of that's interesting because that's sort of the wellness paradigm, right? Yeah. In the we- in, in in the exaggerated idea of wellness, it is you will insulate yourself from the thing, so you you get one of those massages on a spa bed, right? Where <laughs> where where you 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 control your diet in a way that yeah. that the bad things don't happen to you because the outside world is the danger. Mm-hmm. With the wedge, it's a, it's sort of a different philosophy, which is expose yourself to the things that are difficult and then teach your body to adapt to them so <laughs> you should feel stressed sometimes like yeah. you have to get into situations that are emotionally intense that are physically intense that are that put you in a risk um, environment and then you realize that okay when i'm in that i can actually control myself which gives you a broader range for where you can be so that when you are watching netflix on your couch you can really watch netflix on your couch yeah because, you're you know, not yeah, you're not only there, and that's really what the this this difference is. is as you mm-hmm. get um, exposure, <clears throat> uh, in what, what you know, the Greeks call hormesis, right? When you when you expose yourselves to, to to dangerous, difficult things, that sort of that stress, that damage, that allows you to grow. Yeah, and I think you know, I, Kathleen was saying sometimes we feel numbness, but the numbness is not the wedge. That's almost like no. it's like we've just shut down, and then all of a sudden it comes, it can come roaring back. Mm-hmm. Um, Anna Lopez was talking about feeling so much heaviness, you know, and, and it, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily erase the sadness that mm-hmm. we feel. Um, and so like with that in mind, I, we're going to take a quick serotonin break for everyone. Cause I see Mark has, Mark has brought some, some friends here. So we're going to serotonin break, serotonin break. Do you want to show us what you got there, Mr. Mark? So, yeah. So, uh, in, in treating, uh, such situations, one may, uh, need to, Seek the help of a little peeper, little peeper number one, or if blonde is not your color, little peeper number two, or little peeper number three. Let's see if we can get them all. These little peepers are three days old. Wow. (laughs) 
And uh, yes, they are very, very uh, good for the spirit. They are. They are. Their names are Edna, Matilda, and Frankie. (laughs) And they will soon be joining our chickens outside. So if you guys needed a little bit of love, there's our little baby chicks. Here's a a little love. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Marky. We all need a little bit of that in our life. Yeah, we got a lot of odds happening here. (laughs) Um, I did see a question before, before the chicks, and I want to recapture it, um, where she was talking about, uh, went to a Korean spa and had like Mm -hmm. hot, cold in three minutes. And she had kind of like these epiphanies. Is that something that we're calling the wedge? Is that, is that similar to what you're talking about? I wonder what if what she means by epiphanies there, but certainly when in the Korean spas, which are awesome, uh, you are, you're going from hot to cold and the, and the cold is very, very intense, right? The, si- the signal you get in ice water or, you know, Korean spots are like 50 degrees, so it's close to ice water, you is death, right? Your body doesn't have a lot of language. It's like, I'm in death. And then, and then you say, no, it's not actually death. You were wrong, body. I'm, I'm going to live. And then you, 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 you become, what happens is you relax in the stimulus of death. And then you say, "Oh, it's not. It's actually something I can handle." Mm-hmm. And and then and then when you and, and then there's also some um, cardiovascular stuff and neurolo- neurological stuff that's happening there as well. Mm-hmm. Then when we switch to hot, that's comfort, that's warmth, that's love. That's your body being like, "Oh, I'm safe," right? Yeah. And and like that's a- where, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's where. And and so in in physiological terms, we have sympathetic. That's your fight or flight responses. That's in the ice water. And then you, when you're in that ice water and everything is saying, go, go sympathetic, you tell yourself, no, I can relax and I can be parasympathetic. And then when you go to the hot, um, you know, in a Korean spa, you're, it's basically a sauna and you're just actually going deeper, deeper into that parasympathetic when you're there and you're, you're letting your cardiovascular system relax because it was just right. very intense before. So you're going back and forth in terms of the epiphany. I would need to know a little bit more about what you were thinking, but I will say yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> now, I, Lorelai asked a question, which is kind of related. So it's one thing we can go into this physical stimulus and kind of relax into it, right? But that doesn't always happen. I'm, a, I'm, I'm with Lorelai's. I can go into information collection mode, right? Sure. I'm a researcher. It's what I do. I'm also autistic, so it's, it's not surprising that that's mm-hmm. my go-to. But, um, but it sometimes doesn't help because there it seems like right. sinking deeper but instead of it, right. you getting used to the stimulus, it's like you're ramping up. Does it not work on the with the brain? Is it only a body thing? It does work with the brain. Um, the thing is that you know we evolved with certain problems, right? The, the, on the African savanna in our in our like prototypical background, right? Your problem was scarce resources, maybe dangers from animals, maybe you know these sort of very physical and immediate issues. And so when you saw the lion and it was charging at you, you threw your spear, you ran up the tree. You didn't like check out the lion's 401k plan to be sure he was qualified to go attack you, right? You you didn't have the, you know, there's this evolutionary mismatch there. And so when you were in a problem now, we've gotten to a point where uh, the, the, the dangers that face us are no longer existential and immediate. So we go into information gathering mode in order to try to game out what could be existential problems down the road, like having health insurance taxes. Those are all things that might. I guess, kill you later in certain ways. <laughs> in but, their own little ways, yes. But if you 
what we need to do is if you live all the time in your head, which we a lot do, right? We sit in our home offices and we're in our heads. If you go out and you give yourself physical stimulus, that that is what your body has been craving. Like we want to to when the when the insurance man or sort of the IRS comes and says your tax bill is due, our bodies want to smash his head with a rock. <laughs> we can't do that in the modern world. <laughs> spear, spear, where's my, my tax forms? Tax forms, that's what I meant. Um, <laughs> but but it, you know what though? It's interesting. Um, Alexandra just followed up. By the way, she was saying that like a sort of deep gut feeling arose, something she had been sort of kind of holding down, and then when she had the hot and the cold, it, it sort of came out. Um, oh, yep. Yeah, that's a blood pressure thing. That's a blood pressure thing. <laughs> that, that, like that's, but that's great. I mean, it, it, so, so when you're in the cold, you constrict. All your blood goes to your core. And when you go into the 200, you expand. And so yeah. sometimes in those situations, you'll have feelings of disorientation mm -hmm. um, and some other stuff. Those are all sensations that can also link to emotional experiences, too, mm -hmm. because you may have held similar situations at various points in your life that are somehow connected neurologically in that whole right. section where I call neurological symbols. Yeah. Well, and uh, so Stephanie, Stephanie's just like, Hey, I'm autistic as well. Um, yeah. Now you guys know why I have so much trouble keeping eye contact with the camera. Uh, but, but it's because well, the camera's over here. It's yeah, like it's, over it's there and, I'm, and you're over here. I'm not good at it the best of times, yeah. but, uh, but it's true. And I think uh, I carry a lot of, a lot of, um, trauma from not being diagnosed autistic until quite late. And so, you know, you, you, you carry that around without realizing that you're carrying it around and then something happens, which seems unrelated and it's triggered in the, you know, and it's your wired kind of strange. Um, <clears throat> Susanna asks, what's your take on secondary trauma? Take someone who survives a violent crime and gets blamed for perpetrating the crime by the justice system. In other words, someone ends up getting traumatized as much by the paperwork and all the stuff as, as they, you know, as they would by the actual trauma, how can they use exposure therapy? Like, is there a way for that to, yes, to be used? Totally. And the thing is, I mean, there are a lot of things to unpack in that situation. Um, when, when the trauma first happens, um, uh, maybe we're talking about rape here, right? Or, or some sort of an assault or something like that. There are going to be many things that occur in that moment uh, that, that are, not only the trauma, not only say the sexual violent trauma, but your, 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 your systems are so heightened in that moment that you're capturing every sensation. So the, the amber quality of the light is coming in. That's getting encoded. The smell of that person's breath, but also the smell of the poinsettia across the room, mm. encoded. The, 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 the way the blinds are tilted, certain colors, all of that gets encoded at trauma at the same time because trauma is an intense experience. All your neurons are like, oh my God, I don't want to be here. And or whatever they're doing, they could be doing 50 different things. And, and but all of that, because the way your brain collects information gets created into this neurological package that gets, right. then gets stored away. Um, then the next time you experience that poinsettia, mm. someone's poinsettia, mm -hmm. That can actually trigger that other those other Unlock it like that. because they're linked. Right. So one way to um, to and and you're talking about secondary um, stuff with the justice system. I'm going to leave that aside because that's actually a whole nother set <laughs> can deep. of worms. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's just talk about the, the the rape in the room with the poinsettia. Um, and now every time you see a poinsettia, it freaks you out, even if you're not realizing that it, you're looking at that poinsettia. Right. You don't even um, know why you suddenly have you know, high blood pressure or whatever. Totally. So one thing you can do is the exposure 
to more and more stimuli. Uh, I talk about neural symbols as if they are books on a shelf in a library. And and every time you, you yeah, right. Every time you have that, here's my trauma symbol. It's all backwards. Here's my trauma symbol right here. And, and that's going to be there. And I can actually never get rid of that. Your brain codes stuff and there's no like garbage disposal to, to, to vanish it. But what you can do is put more and more books on that shelf. So you can have your positive poinsettia experience too. If you care about poinsettias, you can also say, <laughs> fuck poinsettias. I don't care. Um, but, but, uh, but, uh, but you want to start reattaching things, especially to the non, the other symbols that got coded in that traumatic experience that could trigger it. You want to add new valences to those things. And you right. can do that by exposing yourself uh, to those objects, those, those stimuli, or, your own body in, in ways where you, you reduce all the stimuli around you so in a place like a flotation tank or meditation. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you're able to actually look at some internal stimuli because what was also getting coded was your heartbeat, was your right. blood pressure, was mm-hmm. the dilation of your eyes, was the way your ears were doing something. I mean, all of that stuff gets coded. Right. Well, Kristen is asking, um, and this is a, about how to acclimatize. She worked uh, at a, a, an aquarium with surface feeding fish and was saying that like, she's jumpy about movements. It, you know, was there, is there a way, would it, is it the same kind of thing? Is it like, you need more books? We should, we, we got to send Kristen off where there's other jumpy animals too. <laughs> or, or how do you, how would you, how would you fix that kind of a, uh, of a situation? So- Two things come into mind. There's the parasympathetic way and there's the sympathetic way. The parasympathetic path is spend more time in nature where things happen unpredictably, but maybe aren't always bad. Don't go to a a reserve of mountain lions, but go to a place that's sort of safe in nature. Expose yourself to more and more stimuli in a safe place. And that's important because if if you're going to a war zone and you don't feel safe, you're not going to encode the right symbols. You'll encode the danger that's present in the environment. Right, right. Um, The other way to do it and this will be controversial, and I'm sort of making this up, but I think this will work, (laughs) is to watch something like a horror movie, right? Where the stimulus coming in is emotionally traumatizing. I cannot stand horror movies. I would never take my own advice here, right? (laughs) Could not watch it with jump scares. But if you're in a situation which has a positive valence, you're with your lover, you're with a good friend, and you have this fun side to this, that can encode those jump scare moments or those fish surfacing moments with fun. And, you know, this is what our, our, our brains, our sensory systems pick everything up at once. Right. And you can actually recode that if you really want to. And it may not be super easy because remember, those scary fish moments are still going to be on your shelf. Right. Like, that book never goes away. It's there for your whole life. Mm-hmm. Your library can only grow. So you're so... So you can pull, you have the option of pulling more books off the shelf, but you'll never truly get rid of it. It reminds me of, uh, so I, I'm a historian of, of death and grief. And one of the things that I really try to convey when I, I write about grief and do grief work with people is that, you know, when you lose someone important to you, it's a lot more like a, it's like an amputation or something. It, it yeah. That doesn't change. What happens is your life grows up around it. It's it's not mm-hmm. really people talk about, oh, your grief will shrink. That's not entirely true. It, it's there, and then you try to build things around it. So it sounds really right. similar, I think, to certain mm-hmm. kinds of um of uh of, of grief workshops and, and other things that I've I've heard. Um Leanna asks, where do out-of-body experiences originate seeing yourself sort of 
down there. And and you talk a little bit about uh, the yoga experience. That was my blood. You're like holding your breath in the yoga studio. I <laughs> partly I felt bad for the yoga, not yoga, but you're in a yoga studio. The breath instructor, like Scott, like hi, yeah. There's people in here, Scott. <laughs> but um, wh- how does that? What what is operating there? And obviously, this has been slightly. Um, officiated uh in the last couple of days with the brainwave post-death there's this idea of what your brain does i did not read that article i saw the headline i'm gonna write about give give me the cliff note give me the cliff note on that because it sounded cool (laughs) so uh, i'm I'm in the process of writing an article response because obviously i've just did all this stuff with brain death and everything but uh in the moments of death they captured it accidentally they were looking for something else but they happened to have this brain scan as this person died in the moments right before death um, the brain kind of goes, and this like big wave happens, mm-hmm. possibly after you've already died. Like that was the fuzzy thing is that they were like, some of this is actually going on after you. Well, I read a book about death and it seems like it's very, very um, squishy <laughs> about what death is. I don't know if you've seen it, yeah, but I, the yeah. moment of death seems, <laughs> I don't know. Right, right. <laughs> um, but they said what lights up, what lit up in the brain were all the memory centers. So when you say like your life flashing before your eyes, that might actually happen actually in a very physical kind of all the neurons that were in control of memory kind of went, Hey, right before the end. And so, um, it, an interesting question. I, yeah, I or not. I mean, they just had, no. they, they, they saw some waves saw on some the machine. Waves. Like, like when I, when I turn off a TV set, there's like a little flash too. What, what's what is it meant? Remembering the show? I mean, yeah, we, we should take a couple steps back from right. what I'm hearing of, uh, from your clip notes version of what was going on. But yeah, the question, yeah, what yeah. happens, Hmm. Oh, the question about what happens between body and mind is super interesting. In terms of what you were talking about, though, when I was hyperventilating and holding my breath for many, many minutes, like seven, eight minutes or something like that, uh, there is this thing that happens, which is a DMT response, which is when you die, supposedly, you release um, this chemical called DMT out of your pineal gland, and it gives you all these visions. Well, you can also access surprisingly similar visions through this breath work. And they call DMT, the spirit molecule, the death molecule, these things. Um, the reason why we know that you release it when you're doing this breath work is not because we have a sci- we put a, a scientific meter into your pineal gland to say we've released it. It's because we know a lot of people have recreationally done DMT exogenously. They smoked it out of like toad venom. Like, oh yeah, that's really similar experience. So you know, take some of this with a grain of salt, but if it is the same, um, what what is going on is you are uh, experiencing to some degree what you might experience in death. And there is this, for me, when I've done this, I've had that sensation of going forward down a tunnel and things are awesome and really interesting, but maybe I should hang out in the real world. And I do not know if I would die if I had kept on holding my breath, but I was definitely told to breathe. Um, <laughs> my guess, though, is that I wouldn't. My guess is that I would have passed out, and then I would have automatic would have would have in that circumstance. So you can do that in terms of the above seeing your body outside and looking down. Um, I have no clue. <laughs> not got nothing on that. <laughs> I I but you know it's very interesting how how many. How many of you out there, I used to ask this of my students all the time. I would say, what's your earliest memory? And they would tell me. And then I would say, okay, did you see yourself in that earliest memory? And a lot of them did. And then they realized that it couldn't actually have been a memory. It was probably something they were heard or were told or saw from pictures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so often we actually do picture ourselves 
they're not direct. I know my earliest memory was of a horse's nose. That's probably a real memory because I wasn't in it. Like I was just focusing on. So I, it's complicated. I remember my hands going and I'm falling face first down a stairwell and I'm watching myself. That's my first memory. But again, I may have invented that. I, yeah. I learned how to walk in eight months and then I just kept getting away from people. Um, so anyway, Smart. somewhere I ended up with a horse. But uh, I have these, I have a lot of stories like this. Somehow I ended up with a horse. That was before I got kicked out of preschool. So, um, but I think that, you know, we, when we say we see our bodies, I'm not sure that we don't kind of do that a lot anyway, because we do sort of avatar ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, the homunculus a is a super fascinating idea, right? With, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a photo of this, but like the way your, your neurons, your nerves, understand your body is this thing called a homunculus. Go Google it. And it's this like, where you have more nerves is actually represented in your body as a bigger thing. So we have giant lips, giant genitals, giant hands, and a giant feet. Uh, but the rest of us is actually not sensed by our brain as much. You know, I, my elbow is not super sensitive, so it's not right. really represented very much. So, and homunculus look a lot like gnomes, like weird, <laughs> fleshy gnomes. <laughs> I've seen these. I've actually seen them. I think they did a display of this at the Welcome in London. I think they did these. They had like several of these mm -hmm. kind of unusual things. Um, two things that I was just thinking about, and then we have a question from Kathleen, which is pretty interesting about how to use the wedge today. Um, the uh, one is that, you know, in the Victorian period, they thought maybe your eyes recorded the last thing you saw. So they were trying to remove the corneas from dead murder victims to see if they could see the killer's imprint on the, that doesn't work. That would have been awesome if they that could though. Awesome. Right. That, that would make a great story, but it doesn't work. <laughs> it is this kind of idea that somehow you're recording stuff mm -hmm. in a specific way. And so it's funny. Um, we, we poo poo that and we make fun of it, but yet uh, we take a lot of liberties in, in analyzing brain scans, um, which mm -hmm. might be just as, as fuzzy in the in interpretation. Um, so Kathleen has a question here. She says, how about the wedge in the never ending COVID world? Um, how can, you know, because it's true, people are becoming highly over, extremely overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and particularly healthcare workers, but I think all of this really. Yeah. Uh, I mean, here's the thing is that healthcare workers are overworked and you are being put into a situation by a financial, economic, healthcare, bureaucratic system that's, that's making you unhealthy. I mean, right. the, the, the truth is you do need to expo expose yourself to a variety of stimulus, but it is so overwhelming that it's hard to do. And uh, I don't know, I can tell you that I understand why so many healthcare workers are quitting right now. Sure. Because the, in, the environment that you inhabit is itself toxic to your nervous system. Mm -hmm. um, that what you should be doing, my get, is you should be exposing yourself if you can muster the energy yeah. to powerful sensations outside of healthcare. Whether this is the Wim Hof breath work is super easy to do it in the morning. It's 15 minutes in the morning. Or like a really spa, you know, like this is, that sounds mm -hmm. like she's doing really good self-care for the, in, as far as that goes. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and, you know, if you're in a situation that constantly reinforces stress, I can't give you a a magic bullet to make yourself a better worker you know sometimes the actual environment the actual situation is stressful <laughs> yeah there's nothing you can do about yeah yeah i mean and, and we expose ourselves over much i think um mm -hmm. to we don't get this kind of breaks um i know i personally am i tend to be i almost have like 
intravenous connections, like some matrix level connections to, uh, to social media, which is not good for me. So we, we do need, I think, a lot more, uh, a lot more breaks involved. Um, mm -hmm. I see a question from Jeff, and uh, it's an interesting one. What's your relationship with video games these days? I, I love this one, this question, because <laughs> at the end of the wedge, I'm doing ayahuasca in Peru, and I realize I have this addiction to video games. <laughs> and I vomit up video games into a bucket, a dirty, dirty bucket, and out with it went my um, desire to sort of get sucked back into these sort of addictively oh, neural created video games um and so the, here's the thing after i did i did that experience i didn't play a video game for a year i nothing i was just like not even interested yeah. and then covid came along and i played a little bit because there was time i was stuck in my house right. and and they were fine they were fine i played them I, I did not get too wrapped up in them and then i don't i don't play them at all right now um i have a much healthier relationship with them but i'm, I'm still cautious of what it, of, of that th there's the possibility to get neurologically mm -hmm. tied back into them and uh, I wouldn't say that just doing ayahuasca destroyed the potential for me to get re-addicted to them like that is still possible out, out there yeah yeah but it did stimulate me it, it did when I did that all of the things that were currently encoded were gone uh, mm -hmm. after that experience and that was really interesting to feel I, 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 it's interesting, the kinds of things I, I know this from my parents, my parents have both struggled with addiction, but the addictions are very strange. Um, we're all used to thinking about addiction to drugs, of course, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, drug addiction, alcohol. But um, my, my dad has a very addicting, addictive, stimulated uh, personality. And so he became addicted to bread at one point. So it's like there's, if you are someone for whom it's like the, this kind of um, predisposition, predisposition, I think, however it comes from, that anything can become addicting. I know that I personally am a little, maybe a small amount addicted to work um, because I, I get stimulated from that, right? I'm always- well, so, so Andrew Huberman gave a, an interesting quote to me um, a few years ago, where he said that addiction is the progressive narrowing of the things that give you pleasure. Mm. And I think that's a really nice thing to do is that, because you, know, you, you, you find that, yeah, the, the fewer and fewer things that can make you happy give you pleasure, and 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 that is why the wedge is so important. Is it's it's giving you're you're finding by exposure other things that you can do. It's breaking you out of your um, the the narrowing of addiction of comfort of of these sorts of things. Um, I just wanted to put up because I think this is kind of weirdly related. Uh, Chloe Rogers was saying she remembered someone in the UK government suggesting healthcare workers should do yoga on their break. And people were like, how are they going to eat and do yoga in the 30 minutes that they're allowed? And I think that that's the other thing is we have systems that are not always ready to, you know, the systems around us are part of the problem too. And I think we always have to be careful not putting so much of the onus on the individual person. Cause some of it is you're just mm -hmm. in a crap situation and it's crappy mm -hmm. and it, there isn't a whole lot. And there's also the weaponization of some of these effects, which I think is really interesting. It's like, for instance, the military uh, was uh, putting snipers through mindful training, mindfulness training. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of mindfulness is not to make someone a better violent sniper, right? <laughs> it, it, there are things that are sort of contradictions. So they're teaching someone to quell their nervous system, but they're putting that stuff in a context which is dangerous or wrong. Right, right. No, I, I agree. And I think that that's, this is always the trick. Whenever 
whenever we talk about things that are on one hand, a kind of self-help, a kind of self-care, mm-hmm. um, but you know, we live in, in, in times where you're expected to go do your self-care on your own time and then give 180% to, you know, we have a lot of broken systems um, mm-hmm. in this country. So, uh, and you know, several of them are talking about trying to use timers for things. Uh, Leanne was talking about using timers, Alexandra talking about how, um, you know, that you're, you're taught to be a martyr. I I think there's so many different things Mm -hmm. that combine and timers can be useful, other things, but honestly, um, okay, Lexi, yes, go March, Alexandra, do it. Um, But one of, one of the things I think is really important is realizing that there's a limit to what we can do. The wedge is there. Mm -hmm. And and I'm excited about it. I've been enjoying learning about it. I know, I know Mark has been enjoying reading uh, what doesn't kill us. Um, and learning a ton from that too, but there's limits to what we can actually accomplish versus what the systems uh, allow. I, I mean, you can become a more efficient worker by doing this stuff, right? Like you could by by doing your ice bath, getting your preparations, doing your breath work, dedicating time to that, and then putting yourself in the situation, you'll be able to endure that stressful situation longer. But I think the, the important question is, is what <laughs> we should also be looking at the stresses that you're giving yourself passively. Uh, that versus just the active one. And there is this work-life balance part. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess in the wedge, a, a cynical reading of it is I, I could make you a more mindful sniper. I could make you a more uh, a healthcare <laughs> worker. But what uh, Scott Carney, the writer, is like, don't necessarily do that to yourself. Don't yeah. push yourself to sort of craziness because we need variety, right? And if your job is always full on, then that's actually the problem. Right, right. Well, I we are we are we're about uh, we're we're getting closer to the end of our show. I have a a, a quick video to show all of you. Then we're going to have our quiz. So you guys need to like be ready. You be ready because we're going to going to quiz Scott Carney, and I'm going to try not to mess it up because Davy Davy created it specially for Scott. So, but first, um, I I wanted you guys to know we you know we had a, a little bit of time uh, not too long ago to meet the peculiar in the field. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with Fraggle Rock, but I love it. Yeah, right. So you know the uncle who sort of travels around and sends letters back mm-hmm. to the fragments. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we have our own version of that. We have a traveling peculiar, traveling troubadour uh, in Cord Ravenswood, and we decided to share his origin story today. So here we go. Not far from the places you may have been are other places. Places off the well-known off-trod paths. Places that hold secrets and wonder. There may be one around the corner from you now. And in these mysterious coves of our world, you will find Cord Ravenswood. You know him as a traveling troubadour, an explorer, and chronicler of the uncertain and seldom seen. But how did Cord Ravenswood come to be your peculiar in the field? As a boy, Cord was shy and did not speak until he was almost three years old. (laughs) We worried about him, Ash and I. In fact, his father was at times rather confused by Cord's silence. The boy has so much to say, so much life in him. You can see it in his eyes. He'd bellow after taking little Cord out for a jaunt in his ebony perambulator. (laughs) But I could tell. Cord was just very curious. He was keenly watchful. (laughs) I was teaching the children about the lost colony of Roanoke, Virginia. And the quiet, weird kid raises his hand, and I called on him. And he speaks for 33 minutes. I timed him, talked about plague and food scarcity, the indigenous population at the time, the weather 
conditions on record, and something called a Sasquatch rumpus. Cord became interested in folklore and folk music. Soon he formed his first band, Snallygast. Oh, Snallygaster was great. We had a following and we even toured a little bit. I remember one time we picked up this last minute gig for the military at an air base far away. I remember that the stage lights were high above us and they seemed to be spinning. Oh, pretty country. I hope to return to Roswell someday. As the young man grew, so too did his appetite for the unknown. Cord just really needed to spread his pedipulps. In time, I realized I wasn't going as far as I needed to go. We were all surprised when CR went to Wittenberg University to study history on scholarship, but looking back, it all made sense. At Wittenberg, I roomed with a Danish kid. He was really nice, but he had to leave suddenly when his father was killed back home. It was around this time that I went abroad to study in Russia at the Rasputin Institute. That was very illuminating. Did you know? That was quite a thing. <laughs> the first time I saw Cord Ravenswood? Uh, well, I had stopped in for a cocktail at a local speakeasy here in Cleveland, and a man was espousing a, a drunken tirade about whether or not the protein expressors that code our DNA could experience a form of biological cognitive dissonance. And then he sang a song about neutrinos. I knew I had to get him for the show. He originally turned me down, though. Oh, Brandy was great and all, but I just didn't really feel a connection. Oh, but then I met another one of her contributors, Finger Guns. <laughs> she had a really fresh perspective, and she was the one that convinced me. To this day, I honestly don't know if he uh, understands. Finger Guns is great. What has a life of wandering investigations taught this hirsute hero of hiking, history, and horror? Hear tell. You know, an eclectic named Halo Wines once said to me, Cord, you're already going far. You just need to go farther. She was right. Whoa. So now we know. Now, now we know where that peculiar in the field comes from. Um, he's a little confused. A bit mm -hmm. like the Fraggle Rock uncle, which I, I think, it, you know, it all kind of, it, come, it comes together. It comes together well. He's one of us, is what I'm saying. Um, okay, it's time for the quiz. I'm going to try and do this. I have to switch back and forth for your comments. So here's how this works, Scott. We've got a quiz for you. And luckily, you have help. So basically, the Peculiars oh, can God. help the question. They can answer the question. When you put that video together, did you like purposely make all these references to my wife's podcast? Or was that just totally random? That's totally random. So weird. So weird. Because the Snallygaster, Sasquatch, Roswell, my wife has this podcast called Wild Thing and all of that stuff gets mentioned. So I didn't that so so actually Nick is Nick is the um is the one behind that particular video. Um I'm sorry, I mean Cord, Cord Ravenswood. It's a lovely guy. Okay, so here's our questions. We are we're about to cue these up. It's gonna it's gonna disappear, Mark, for a minute, but Mark's still here. He can help too. All right. First question. First question. 
can you survive the movie quiz? So we're trying to take movie versions. This is something Davy does often. It is sort of related to the book. In the movie Tracks, Robin Davidson's attempts to trek 2,700 kilometers across the Western Australian desert with these animals as her companions. Now we've got three answers here. A, her cat and elephant. Her dingo and kangaroos. Her dog and camels. So now I'm going to go here. Let's see. What? What what do you guys think? Who's oh Leanne says C. All right. Mark, do you Definitely. have any? I'm feeling Leanne on this one. You're feeling Leanne that, on this one? I feel Dog like I, I feel like that just seems more logical because I have cats, they they hate hiking. Um, <laughs> I don't know anything about dingoes, but I know they eat babies, so no one wants to go hang out with them. So it's gotta be camels and dogs. It, yeah, and I, I, I naturally navigate towards camels with it being a desert man who has uh, an elephant hanging out. Just anyway. hanging around in Australia, yeah. Um, so but you know what? To be different, I'm going to pick B. We're going to pick B. Okay. All right. So now I've got to go back here and find the answer. The answer is C. Her dog <laughs> and camel. So we did. We we got that one right. Hey. Makes sense. It does make sense. It does make sense. Okay. Question two. In the movie Life of Pi, what is the name of the Bengal tiger that shares the lifeboat with Pi as they float across the ocean? So it's not. I feel pie. like I know this one. So A, Ronald Porter, B, Richard Parker, C, Robert Patterson. <laughs> it's definitely an RP, right? It seems that way, yeah. I think it's Richard Parker. I think I saw Richard this on an airplane Parker? once. Okay, anybody else? Parker. Anyone else have, have, have possible questions here for the RP? And, and I didn't I see it. So... The dogs and dingoes versus... <laughs> I'll, I'll pick A. I'll pick A, okay. Sharon's going with B. Susan's going with B. Any other takers? Are you you said B, Richard Parker? All right, let's find out. Let's let's see what he did for us over here. It is B. Oh, you're doing really well. Normally we fail these quizzes terribly. What way to go? Way We're to rocking, go. guys. We're doing, doing it. Well. We're doing okay. it. Okay. Here we go. Carney, here you go. In the movie The Martian, stranded Austria. Astronaut, yeah. Stranded astronaut Mark Watney is able to reestablish communication with NASA by using what? An old Mars probe? So I'll just let other people guess because I know this one. Oh, you know this one. Okay. I, I know it. Okay. Know smoke it. signals, flashing light at a satellite. All right. What do we got over here? Um, let's see here. A. Kristen Meston says she has a cousin named Richard Parker. <laughs> a. We got a lot of tiger. It's freaking A. All right, here freaking we go. A. A. I'll choose A as well. I have to. <laughs> now I've got to disappear the comment here. Although smoke <laughs> signals would have been cool. Smoke signals would have been way cooler. Way cooler. I agree. All right, now I have to take the quiz down. I'm no good at this. There's Wait, Mark's can you name? What, can you name the, 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 the probe? Was it Pathfinder? Was it... <laughs> Pathfinder? Oh, I kind of like that. I think, yeah. I think it might have been Pathfinder. Anyway. I will I you're it's all you, man. I, <laughs> I have no idea. I think that's a frog. Is it a frog? It's very cute. It's Susan, I kind of love your little emoji thing there with the uh the squid and the otter. Um loving it. So that's our quiz. Our quiz is always a lot of fun. You did really well. Usually people, we just kind of fail these typically. Like <laughs> there's a giant we don't fail. fail and we don't fail in Wedgeland. We get this. In Wedgeland. Right. There's no failing. There's no failing. I think it was Pathfinder, Leanne says, and she's likely to know, actually. There we go. Um, <laughs> Stephanie Smith is Julius. Came. You got Julius. Oh, that's fantastic. Julius is a squid. 
Uh, he's our mascot and on our pins. And Stephanie got the plush version of him for winning our contest mm. for the last uh, last time, which is great. It, yay for Julius. Yes. His name is Julius Sees Her. <laughs> As That's in, right. Sees mm. Um, okay, so we we still have a little. I know we're we're running short of time, and so I just want to ask if you guys have final questions for Scott. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours about this because it's a really. I mean, the book is mind blowing to me in a number of I ways. I got a whole bottle of whiskey. I mean, got a whole bottle. We could be here for all night, man. I ran out of my drink, and I'm not eating the worm because I I feel friendly towards worms. So, um, but uh, <laughs> mostly we just have a lot more squid comments happening over here. Um, what I love about your book is that it's there's a lot of uh, self help books about this kind of thing that are all frou frou. But I also I ran an anthropology, a medical anthropology journal for a decade, and so I'm very keen on anthropology. It's so nice to read a book that feels like this is this is a real investigation into how these things work, and it it has the science and it has questions, and you try things out, and I try things out. I I threw myself in the snow for a couple of days, um, and. Uh, I think the most amazing thing was that I really, I found myself agreeing with you a lot on, on experience based things. You talked about the fact how you stop being cold. I mean, you're cold, but you're not. And, uh, I snow bathed and then I went out and took the chickens into the yard and it was 20 degrees and I was in my shorts and a tank top and I didn't mm -hmm. even notice. I thought, well, that's weird. Um, so it was all the so neighbors nice. did, but all but the neighbors did. did yes. Yeah. Right. Well, all right. All right. <laughs> Just Joe, we have a neighbor named Joe. He's, he noticed. Um, Alexander said, super amazing topic. Absolutely amazing. Inspiring story. What is the name of, oh, my old journal, uh, Culture, Medicine, and Psychiatry, a medical anthropology journal that I ran for, I was a managing editor of that for a decade. Um, honorary anthropologist as a result. We actually publish anthropology articles at Medical Humanities too. So, hmm. um so, so I'm very excited about um, reading the rest of um, What Doesn't Kill You and then also The the Edge. And The Edge, based on what you've talked about, kind of uh, takes me back to um, when I was younger, I had asthmatic bronchitis that was um, uh, facilitated through secondhand smoke. And so mm -hmm. I had trouble breathing at age 15 and on. You know, your body just says, you know what, hey, uh, we're going to give you trouble breathing. And then, you know, just kind of thinking about this, uh, I just instinctively in, uh, didn't want to be on the medicine. So I, mm -hmm. I started walking and jogging and then eventually running, punching through that, uh, that, that, you know, wedge type thing. And then now I run, you know, three to five miles, uh, you know, like, every, every time like I go. So. It's kind of crazy. Like he does it, it on. It's, well, just, I mean, it's, it's it, the body is amazingly adaptable. It, and the more you do things, the more you, you find you're capable of. And usually when people tell you there's limits, um, they're wrong. You know, because you, yeah. you know your body better than other people. So other people looking at you as an object is going to be different than you understanding yourself as a subject. Right. Right. Um, but I do oh, I want to answer Jeff's question. Yeah, Jeff's, Jeff's question is like critical, um, which is that is there a connection between tinnitus and uh, the Wim Hof method? And uh, I had posted something on Reddit about this not so long ago, a year ago or something like that, because there have been a lot of reports about people who are doing cold exposure and the breath work and they're coming up with constant ringing in their ears. 
And it's interesting. I've met people for whom the Wim Hof method has cured tinnitus. And I have met people for whom after doing the Wim Hof method, their tinnitus gets much, much worse. And I think that there's something that's not totally understood here. But we, but what we do think we do know is that tinnitus is, uh, comes from the sympathetic pathway, right? There's something about that stress pathway that gets, gets interpreted as, as ringing in the ears and triggers mm-hmm. that nerve or whatever it does to cause the tinnitus. Mm-hmm. And I would say um, if you start feel, seeing ringing in your ears that lasts more than, say, 30 minutes after doing the Wim Hof breathing, maybe back off of the Wim Hof <laughs> breathing. Um, <laughs> yeah. because. Maybe don't do it as much because you might have a physiology or some other stuff that's encoded in there that makes you more susceptible mm-hmm. to tinnitus, and it's not a good thing to have. I get ringing in my ears, but it's bearable, so I'm not too worried. But so for some people, tinnitus makes them go commit suicide. So yeah, be it's not it's nothing to be. Yeah, I mean, the, the, everyone's body responds to things. I mean, some people respond well to cold. Some people respond well to heat. Some people respond well to chiropractic care. Some to acupuncture. Um, I do think. You know, one of the things that modern medicine has lost is that sense of individuality mm-hmm. in approach. Um, I just reviewed uh, Invisible Kingdom, great book, and um, just like this is a great book. We've got a lot of great books <laughs> going on with us, but but mine's um, the best because I'm here right now. Yours is the best because you're here right now, absolutely. Right. And I, you. you know, I'm actually going to get a wedge <laughs> tattoo right there. Actually, you know what I want? I want the DMT molecule tattoo. Death molecule seems like very metal to me. Like that seems like that should be a tattoo. Have you ever um, done DMT? Has that ever like no. crossed? Are you a drug user? I don't know. Not, um, not, no. I so my, my life is pretty trippy as it is. So I feel like oh, I don't need. Right, help. we mentioned this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Mark yeah. can attest to this. I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm out there as enough as it is, but um, but I, I find all this fascinating. I know we're over time, and people are probably like you know need to go get dinner or something. But this has been fantastic. I'm so glad you've been on. I I feel that we're I feel it. I feel we're gonna see you again. So I'm really excited to have you, and I'm sure for your your next book and your you did say you were working on a, a brand new project. Could you could you give us a preview before we before we sign off? So many projects, not one, like eight. <laughs> I have this book that comes out in March. Vortex, yep. About climate change and uh, and the deadliest storm on, in human history and how it almost triggered a nuclear war. And uh, it's getting great reviews. And uh, and you are going to review it in the Wall Street Journal. I hope so. It's We're going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so that comes out in March. But I have um, two other books that I'm working on. One is super secret, so I'll tell you right now. It's about... Santa Anna, the guy who killed everyone at the Alamo, and why he's actually a hero. Ooh. And then, you know, hashtag banned in Texas. And then the, and, and I'm working on a book on on uh, on medicine and how we can think about Western medicine in a better, more holistic way. So I like it. I like it. Oh, should DM, I agree? I think that should be next. DMT, Lexi, big climate change reading binge. Okay, look for the vortex. You know Ooh. what? I'll try. To get- oh. I also have a YouTube channel that I'm just starting up. So all of you subscribe so people can listen to me. Wait, yammer wait, what, about what is it? I'll, put it, I'll put it in the text here. What is it? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Google Scott Carney YouTube. That's what you need to. Oh, no. Where'd you go, Scott? We lost him. Mark, are you still there? I am. I don't know where he went. Yep, I don't see him. Uh-oh. <laughs> His meter was up. You guys, it was wonderful to have you once again. Thank you for being here where you're, if you're weird, and you are, your family. You got the blue bottle blues when you wake up in the night.
There is no 